Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is bookend favorite, Misha Marin. Misha is the author of Perpetual West, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Misha, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Jason. It's wonderful to be here. It is an honor to have you here. And my first question for you is you have been doing some traveling lately. And as we here in North Carolina are setting record daily numbers for people who are testing positive for COVID-19, still two years into this thing, I want to ask, how are you seeing different geographical areas and different locales reacting to this thing right now? Are some places better than others? Um, yeah, so it's been um, it's been very interesting traveling right now. I would say that um, so I I kind of set up all the trips that I've just been on way back in September when I had hopes that things were going to be a lot better, but I had all these flight vouchers that were expiring in January, and so I decided to press on and um, get tested regularly and double mask and uh, I'm boosted. So, so I went ahead with the travels and uh, it was interesting to see. I was just got back uh, day before yesterday um, from visiting a friend in Dawson City up in Yukon Territory, uh, way, way up north. And this is the first time that that small community is really experiencing large numbers of positive cases. I think with the Omicron, it's, it, you know, they've been able to kind of insulate, isolate themselves. Uh, but there was the first few cases of community spread. And so um, it was interesting to be there and to see how they're kind of moving into the sort of headspace and um, the way of reacting to this virus that I feel like we were at kind of a year ago. So of course this happens, right? But it just hadn't really occurred to me that um, not only are there waves of the virus, but also it hits different communities at different times. And so seeing um, seeing that doesn't happen for the at the same time for all of us. Uh, but everywhere that I went, everyone was, in my opinion, being as safe as they could be and, uh, and really responsible. I mean, I think up in Dawson, it was sad for me because I was, I was there as a visitor, but they, they pretty much shut down all restaurants, um, Mm -hmm. and just decided to get it under control and then try to open things back up. Uh, and I was also in Spain, um, earlier in December and there's just a lot of testing. I think the U S were maybe a bit behind on that, hopefully catching up soon. But I think with the way things are going now, the vaccine is out there, it's available. And the next thing we need to make available is tests just to make it easier. I mean, I think I'm going to see my parents tomorrow and I, um, up in West Virginia, Mm tests are available. So I was able to, to purchase a bunch of at-home tests. I think they're a little oh, nice. harder to get down here in North Carolina, but just yeah. testing myself before pretty much any event and it can get a little pricey, but I don't know. That's, that's the way to go. I feel like right now. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks Misha. I've done a little bit of traveling and I've just been surprised to see how differently everyone's treating it. And even here mm-hmm. in North Carolina, you know, between Durham and Raleigh, it's yes. a completely different experience. Yes. Um, 
So thank you for answering that. Let's now dive into this fantastic new novel, Perpetual West. Uh, You know, I was a huge fan of your debut novel, Sugar Run. And listeners, if you haven't read that yet, do yourselves a favor and order it from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. Um, But your new novel, Perpetual West, is somehow even better than your first. I want to ask you about something in your acknowledgments section, and that is your Thanks to Roberto Bolaño. Tell me, uh, why thank Roberto Bolaño? What did he mean to this book? Well, um, thank you for for that praise and for yeah for um, encouraging readers to read Sugar Run also, um, and for reading the acknowledgments. Um, I love reading acknowledgments in books. Sometimes it's the first thing, or I'll start reading the book and then I I get interested and I go back and look at the acknowledgments. And um, so yeah, I have this whole list of uh, writers that either directly or indirectly affected. Perpetual West and Bolaño is definitely one of them. And I mean, in one way, his uh, novel 2666 um, was a way of looking at um, the border world and um, the violence in Northern Mexico that was very interesting to me. Um, I wouldn't say that he necessarily, that I I necessarily was sort of inspired to write in the same way that he did about it, but seeing um, his perspective and the fact that he, like the whole section that he does on uh, the murders of women there, just the way that he focused in so tightly um, and for such an extended period of time and uh, and brought readers along with him and and um, expected us to to stay tightly focused on that and in a not in a far less than sensational kind of way, right? Like it's it's that especially that part of uh, twenty six sixty six is kind of dry, although I feel like that's a really weird thing to say because it's also horrific. Um, But that way of engaging with it was very, very interesting to me. Um, And also um, the way that he writes about youth, um, I think has always really interested me, like the, the Savage Detectives, the way that he captures like the, the early twenties, like for, for, I think many of his characters are in their late teens, kind of early twenties. And um, so I, maybe that aspect of his writing was even more directly um, influencing me. And that I knew that in Perpetual West, I really wanted to explore what it feels like to be figuring out how to be a young person on your own in the world. And I feel like um, in, well, definitely in The Savage Detectives, but also in, in other of his kind of shorter novels, Bolaño does an excellent job of capturing that uh, feeling and, and being a young person on your own in the world mixed with like this kind of fervor for art and poetry. Uh, and so he was someone that I would 
often when I'm writing a novel, I, I will have a book or a series of books or an author that I kind of use as like a compass. Um, if mm. I am at a certain point in the project where I'm like, what, what was it that I was trying to do here? Uh, and I mm. think like for Sugar Run, it was Dennis Johnson's Angels that was my compass. Like if I felt lost or I felt um, like I'd run up against a sort of barrier in my writing, I would just pick up angels and read from any given page. And um, off and on, Bologna was that compass for me. Yeah, right. And we're going to um, talk about a lot of things that you just mentioned, but about Bologna specifically, um, I wonder sometimes if his moment has passed and when it will come back around, mm. because there was a time when everyone who reads was reading Savage Detectives, 2666, By Night in Chile, you know, Nazi Literature of the Americas, Distant Star, like Romantic Dogs, whatever. People had read everything. And now, I guess, gosh, I don't know how long it's been, so, you know, let's say 15 years later or whatever. Um, I can do a survey and say, who's read Roberto Bolaño? And everyone like just scratches their heads and looks around. And um, it's kind of interesting to me that his moment came and went so quickly. Um, but in my opinion, he's, you know, one of the most important writers that have released anything in our lifetimes. Um, I, I really agree. And I think that's interesting mm -hmm. to hear. I, I think you're right. I hadn't really thought about it in that way. But, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, he, he kind of rose into the consciousness of, of general readers really quickly, even though obviously he had been working for years and years and years. Um, and then, as you said, kind of uh, maybe has fallen away a bit. Um, and yeah, well, uh, I, I hope it'll cycle around. And I'm, I'm always uh, suggesting to my students that they that they read his work. And yeah. there's just such a breadth of it, too. I mean, I think there's one of my favorites of his is his little tiny novel, Amulet. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, like I think there's so many entry points that we can we can only hope that uh, readers will engage again. I'm sure they will. And listeners, um, you can go back into the archives of this podcast and listen to the episode with Natasha Wimmer, Bolaño's, um, one of his two translators. Uh, that was a very cool interview to do. Um, well, thank you, Misha. Um, works of literary fiction that reference other works of literary <laughs> fiction, like Bolaño's Savage Detectives and this new novel of yours, Perpetual West. Do you feel like the audience of these books is narrowed to the readers who can understand all of the illusions? Or do you feel like it invites the unaware reader to dive into these other literary works or both maybe both although i guess i definitely hope for the the latter i think that mm -hmm. in my experience um as a reader i've been able to engage with books that engage with other books kind of unknowingly without being aware of all of the references mm -hmm. and then upon subsequent rereads dive even deeper and deeper and for me uh there's such a joy in finding a literary work that i can revisit not just for the you know beautiful prose or um 
the structure of it, but because I will find clues that will lead me to open new doors when I reread it. So mm. my hope is that, is that it doesn't close doors in readers' faces, but that there are doors that may, some readers may be able to access upon a first read and, and others maybe not, but that that hopefully isn't um, prohibiting them from enjoying the yeah, yeah, no, not at all. And of course, I'm hyper aware of all these references as they pop up, <laughs> as I do work in a bookstore. Um, I next want to ask you about waitressing as this profession plays into your novel. Have you been a waitress before? Yes, I waitressed from, uh, well, I can get, I started when I was in high school and um, my very last waitressing job was in Iowa City. Um, in 2015, I can, I used to know the exact like day of my last waitressing shift because it was mm -hmm. honestly such a joy to be done. But I, I, I want to say it was like probably like May 4th, 2015, something like that. Um, when I got, uh, an agent for Sugar Run and started to focus on finding a publisher for that, I, I um, was I pulled back on my waitressing shifts and, um, and, and it timed up with when I was leaving Iowa City anyways, but um, it's played a large role in my life. And the some of the early scenes in Perpetual West where Alana is waitressing are very much modeled off the last waitressing job that I had. I worked uh, in the Bluebird Cafe in Iowa City for three years. And um, when I was younger, I think there was, a, I, I actually enjoyed waitressing, but uh, by that point I was 30 years old and I was very over it. And uh, so, um, but, but I was able to, to use some of that in this book, which always feels good. So. Yeah, sure. And, and that was a leading question because you have written a very um, remarkable essay about that experience that um, listeners should look up. In your experience, do people, waitresses or otherwise, move to places because they are stalking authors, in the case of your book, uh, Cormac McCarthy? So uh, <laughs> that little tidbit in the book is actually taken from an experience that I had. So I uh, lived and waitressed in El Paso, Texas uh, in 2004 and 2005. And um, someone who I was working with, the um, busboy and dishwasher at the restaurant that I was working at, his mother had, I, I'm not sure, I do think she moved to El Paso for kind of stalking Cormac McCarthy. I can't remember now if she either became obsessed with him once she had moved there or she moved there for that reason. But um, I kind of elaborated on that that tidbit and turned uh, turned that into a character in the book. But that, that was taken from a story that was told to me uh, in reality about uh, someone who was trying to, who thought that they had found Cormac McCarthy's residence and would collect trash from it. Um, so I don't know, that just stuck in my mind. And I was like, I got to use that. Yeah, that's great. That was my first favorite moment uh, in this novel. Um, one more question about waitressing, Misha. How does waitressing compare to teaching undergraduates at a university? Oh, teaching undergraduates at a university is, well, it's just a dream anyways. Absolutely love it. But if we're going to then compare it to waitressing, uh, well, yeah, I, I feel like I somehow like died and went to heaven that I get now uh, to, to teach. I mean, I think that um, the fact that my job now actually involves me using my 
brain <laughs> in a in a way that expands it and excites it. Um, I mean, I that's not I did not not use my brain when I was waitressing, but that felt like it it shut down big parts of of who I was and um, asked me to use only very specific skill sets and. I completely separated my work in terms of waitressing from the rest of my life. I mean, when I was living in Iowa City, I would I would waitress and uh, and then leave there and go and write. But I really didn't talk about writing while I was at work. I, I kept them very separate because otherwise it was it was just too frustrating. Where teaching undergrads, I feel like, is this beautiful mix. I get to bring my writing life into my work, and they my writing and my teaching inform each other in wonderful ways. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's a total dream. Fantastic. Thank you, Misha. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. And I will be right back with Misha Marin. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Misha Marin, author of Perpetual West, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Misha, I want to return to the idea of influences and literary allusions for a moment. There's an artist in your book who says, it's like everyone goes around thinking that admitting the legacy their work came from would tarnish it somehow. Could you unpack this quote for us? Yeah. Um, So I enjoyed in this novel kind of having some of my characters actually voice things that I was working through in developing the novel. So as we talked about um, a little while ago, I've incorporated into this book, you know, allusions to Cormac McCarthy, to Roberto Balaño. Um, and I wanted to be somewhat explicit uh, about the fact that, uh, that those authors have influenced me and that they are part of kind of, I don't know, you might say like the milieu of that, the, the area of Texas and and Northern Mexico uh, that I was working in. And so I found that I was able through the character of Vivi uh, to have someone actually express in dialogue in the book uh, thoughts that, that I was having. And so this character is, yeah, she's a visual artist and she isn't troubled by talking about and demonstrating um, the artists who've come before her, who have influenced her. And I think that I was able through her to think about ways in which I might be able to do that myself and not to sort of pretend that like, you know, something that I write is completely 
like comes out of nowhere and has no influences. Like, I think that's, um, I don't know if it's a particularly American thing or not, but it sort of feels like to me sometimes, like we, um, we like to pretend like, whether it's a piece of literature or a work of art, that it needs to be somehow totally original, whatever that might mean. Um, where I talk to my students about this all the time, really pretty much every story that you could come up with has already been told in some way. Like I tell my students, that's not the goal. The originality comes in how you tell it. And that is something that you can't help but be original, right? Like I am not Cormac McCarthy, I'm not Roberto Bolaño, I'm not going to uh, attempt to copy them. I can learn certain aspects of, of craft, but um, if I'm true to myself, it's gonna come out in an original way, but I don't think I need to pretend like no one's ever told a story similar to the one that I'm telling. I don't think anyone's ever told a story exactly like mine, right? But um, I think there's this some, there's kind of a false idea in um, in the literary world maybe and, and in uh, the world of visual arts of uh, the pinnacle being like true originality, whatever that means. And um, I don't know, I think the quest for that is kind of a false quest and that we really should be more comfortable engaging with the people who've come before us, who've influenced us in, um, positive and negative ways. I mean, I think I also tell my students that I want them to read just as many books that they hate as that they love, because I think you can learn so much from that. Um, and there's ways in which I find some aspects of the way that Cormac McCarthy writes about the border area troubling. And I think that's very useful also. Um, so, um, I wanted to kind of bring all of that in in a very real way in the book, not have it just be kind of an undercurrent, but actually have my characters engage with this idea of um, artistic lineage. Yeah, thank you. And I'm glad that you said that because this um, translates to all art forms. You know, in music, there's only so many chord progressions that yes. can exist in the world. If you look at the Modern Library's list of the top books of the 20th century, number one is Ulysses, which is the Odyssey. Like, it does right. not try to hide that fact. I mean, using other art for inspiration is very important um, and will always happen. Well, thank you, Misha. Um, I now want to talk about Mexico, specifically Ciudad Juarez, and even more specifically, the divide between Ciudad Juarez and El Paso. Can you tell us about these two cities, uh, where they exist in regards to one another, who are, for those who are unfamiliar, and how they are different, both in the perception of the masses and in reality? Yes. So, um, El Paso, Texas and Sierra Juarez, Chihuahua are right across um, the river uh, from each other. And um, El Paso meaning literally the pass and uh, historically it was um, an area of trade routes going right through there. So um, the very edge of Western Texas um, and the two cities are literally right up against each other. Um, the Rio Grande runs um, right through there. And there have been periods of time where they've been more connected. And then um, more recently with different policies uh, that have gone into place, um, they're still obviously right beside each other, but movement between them is somewhat more restricted. And I moved to El Paso in 2004 and um, had 
um, I moved there because I was in love with a woman who was doing um, a study abroad program in Ciudad Juarez. And so I traveled frequently right back and forth. And I was waitressing, as I mentioned, on the El Paso side and working with um, a group called La Mujer Obrera that um, our community organizing group that uh, came into place after NAFTA went through. And a lot of the factories, um, particularly um, jeans factories that were on the US side that were employing a lot of people in that area moved across the border and uh, La Mujer Obrera was helping to kind of step in and um, provide some services and help people um, organize their lives post NAFTA. and. You can't talk about El Paso and Juarez without talking about NAFTA, really. Um, now I think that's a huge aspect of life on both sides of the border there that isn't talked about enough. Um, when people talk about the violence in, you know, Sierra Juarez is, is known now for violence. Um, that's really kind of, at least in the U.S. media and U.S. perception, that that's, Ciudad Juarez is synonymous with high levels of violence. But when we talk about the femicides, the um, killing specifically of women in Ciudad Juarez, and we talk about cartel violence, we tend here in the U.S. to talk about them sort of as isolated events, um, like someone is out there killing women or, you know, the bad cartel people are killing each other, not talking about them um, in the context of a specific set of economic and geopolitical relations. And really that's the way that they need to be understood because when NAFTA went through, some of the changes, um, there, were, there were all sorts of changes, but kind of some of the biggest changes that really affected um, thousands and thousands of people in Mexico had to do with the way that NAFTA um, changed the agricultural um, relationship that Mexico had. Um, so the there were lots of, there were tariffs that got removed. Um, and when NAFTA was negotiated, um, the price, price regulation on staple crops in Mexico is what made it so that small farmers were able to grow things like corn and not be wealthy off of it at all, right? But make a living and be able to, to survive. But tariffs and quotas on agricultural imports were removed with NAFTA. Um, subsidies that had supported small farmers went out the window. So the price of corn dropped by around 50% after NAFTA. Um, and within a few years, two million farmers had abandoned their land. And Ciudad Juarez is a city, obviously. So you might be wondering, you know, why am I talking about agriculture so much? But the one of the results was that folks who had been farming small farms could no longer survive in this way and were basically forced to move into the factories. Um, so this whole new sector of um, of U.S. Uh, manufacturers and manufacturers from other countries that, that moved in. So NAFTA, I think, had a two-part, or more than two-part, but two kind of main parts where made it almost impossible to run a small farm and opened up free trade so that manufacturing could be done uh, in, and Northern Mexico became a big hub for that. So people who lost their farms 
the only other options for them were to work in these factories. These factories pay very, very low wages. And so many people also then moved into um, working for the cartels or, or being involved in some way in the drug trade because that is so much more profitable than most other options. So um, without giving an entire huge long history lesson, um, if, if folks are, are interested more, um, there's a lot of great writers, but I would definitely recommend Carmen Bullosa. Um, she has a wonderful book um, and also a, a, a briefer article um, that you can look up called How the Cartels Were Born that really gets into this. But um, I think the, the big problem with perception of that area, and particularly Sierra Juarez, is that people leave out these geopolitical and economic factors when they look at the violence, when they look at uh, the difference between the U.S. side and the Mexican side. Absolutely. Thank you, Misha. There are characters in your novel who are debating about art that depicts Mexico, specifically art that depicts Mexico made by artists who are not Mexican. The idea of Mexico, colon, beautiful, but deadly. Uh, can you talk about this? Yeah, so again, this is another way in which I wanted to really bring to the surface of the novel aspects of writing the novel that I was working through. So I am not, uh, I lived in the area briefly, but I do not have, um, I'm not Mexican. I don't have uh, that kind of connection to the area. And so as I was writing the novel, I was struggling with ideas of what it means to represent a place that you do not come from, um, people who you cannot claim as your own people. And I decided that I wanted to make this an aspect of the book instead of kind of trying to hide from these questions or uh, run away from these questions that I wanted to bring them to the surface of the book. So again, I used the visual artist VV as a, a way to talk about this on the page. And For my own self, the so one of the answers that I've come up with um, for how one might kind of ethically go about representing uh, a, a place that you do not come from, a group of people that you do not necessarily belong to, is just thinking about empathy uh, and also doubt. I think that the the fears and doubt that I had going into this project and as I worked through it were actually very, very useful to me. I don't necessarily know that um, feeling confident and comfortable is the best posture for a writer. I think that uh, doubt and fear can make us ask questions and dig deeper. And that for me in my process, that is always a good thing. Uh, to doubt if I'm doing it right means for me to go back and examine what I've written and, uh, and have conversations uh, with people um, asking asking folks that I know to read the book and to talk with me about the representations uh, that, that I have in the book. Um, and there's the poet Kwame Dawes uh, talks about empathy uh, as a function of the imagination. And I was really inspired by the way that he talked about, about that um, as I was writing this, thinking about, he talks about um, the process of imagining 
fully with discipline and commitment. And I liked that because I think that sometimes people think of imagination as just this sort of like freewheeling, like, oh, you wait for the muse to come to you and uh, and you're inspired, right? Um, where thinking of uh, the imagination and imagining, fully imagining a person or a place um, as a process full of discipline and commitment just sounded a lot more like my process. So that was nice to, to kind of hear that and to, to work, think kind of um, through that process with uh, inspired by Dawes. And um, I think that empathy, uh, empathy and twinned with doubt uh, is what made me feel like I could persevere uh, in the project. Um, and I, I think maybe the character Vivi in the book would agree entirely sure but yeah nice thank you and i do have to take a moment to shout out um Kwame Dawes. When I was an undergraduate, I played in a, a jazz band with my professor, um, literature professor John Carpenter, who wrote music based on paintings that Kwame Dawes then went and wrote poems about. And it was this like installation thing. And I didn't really know at the time how big of a deal it was, but Kwame keeps coming up. Like everyone that I talk to seems like they have a Kwame Dawes story. So um, I just think that it's sounds cool. amazing, like an amazing project too. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And um, if you don't know as work uh listeners please look him up um misha let's now talk about wrestling luce libre wrestling specifically first uh can you tell our listeners who are unaware how luce libre wrestling differs from quote unquote american wrestling yes so they have the the same uh root or, or lineage i think um professional wrestling, as we call it, uh, in the U.S., uh, dates back to the U.S. Civil War, um, mm. specifically soldiers from Vermont who uh, developed what they called elbow and collar wrestling um, as, a, as a sport, as a way to entertain themselves in the barracks. And that uh, kind of became like a roadside show uh, kind of deal after the war. Um, but if we fast forward um, to the 1930s, there was a man called Salvador Luderoff who actually experienced some of this wrestling in El Paso and was inspired to bring a show like that down to Mexico City and thought that he could find audiences there. And it kind of took off from there and then began to develop its own culture and its own um, different elements. So wrestling in Mexico is more masked, not the masks aren't used in the United States, but masks have a different role. Um, the identity of wrestlers and keeping the identity secret is, plays a big role that it does not really play in the U.S. So a masked wrestler, um, no one except for their family and uh, their promotion company uh, is supposed to know their identity. The fans are not supposed to know that. And then if they are demasked, if they, if they bet their mask against another wrestler and they lose, then their identity is revealed. And that's always a really pivotal point. A wrestler's career can either rise or fall basically. I mean, they could, you know, either sort of be lose their mask and kind of that's, that's the end. Uh, they either transform and have a new character perhaps years down the road or just kind of fall away from it, or they're able to use that moment to 
grab onto a new narrative and um, there might be a switch from um, heel to, or from baby face to heel or, or the other way around. Um, so that's a big difference. And also um, it's just a lot more um, athletic in a certain way, I think, than, than U.S. wrestling. There's a lot more kind of high wire um, jumps and leaps um, that are kind of prized in the sport more than they are here in the US. Um, but they but but with with both uh, forms of it, I think um, the thing that interests me the most is the storytelling aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people always ask when I when I talk about um, wrestling, like, oh well in Mexico is it is it just like the US? Is it totally fake? And I think that's just a really, really wrong way of thinking about it. Um, for a wrestler the outcome of any single given match is not what's important. What's important is the storyline. I think that you're better off thinking of it almost like a comic book hero, right? Like this big arching story, um, not who won tonight, but how did the story get further developed during the match that just happened? Yeah, absolutely. No one's walking around asking if the Avengers are fake, right? Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and folks, you cannot fake getting thrown from the top rope onto a table, no matter how hard you try. It's going to hurt. Yeah, exactly. The athleticism, uh, the physical contact, like mm-hmm. that is not fake, not, not anywhere near it. So, yeah. Yeah. And is it the actuality that these masked acrobatic wrestlers that no one knows who they are? I, for example, to use a uh, more famous wrestler, would have no idea who uh, Rey Mysterio Jr. was if he walked into my bookstore without a mask on. He might be in here right now for all I know. That would be very exciting. Yes, could be, right? Yeah. Um, Great. Well, thank you. Uh, Misha, how is a wrestling match, Lucha Libre or otherwise, how is a wrestling match like a presidential election? So when I was uh, developing the, the wrestling aspect of this novel, I it started really just with the fact that I've kind of always loved uh, wrestling. I mean, starting um, with, you know, with small time professional wrestling that I witnessed um, when I was younger in West Virginia. And then when I did live there in El Paso, um, Lucha Libre events that I attended uh, in Juarez. So it really was just, I, I just loved the world of wrestling and wanted to develop that. But as I began to learn to, to really do research and learn more about the rules of wrestling, I started to see ways in which the kind of theater of wrestling mimics other aspects of life. And, and in the book, I kind of draw out the parallels to, yeah, to a presidential election. Um, in the way, so the, the parallels that I see are kind of that um, the wrestlers try to garner the support of the audience, um, and they do it in in two kind of prescribed ways. One, the, the baby face, you know, wants the audience on their side, that they are in the right, that they have been wronged, that, uh, that they need the support of the audience in that way. And then the heel is more like... Um, like you come on 
you know, audience, I know you hate me, but you hate me so much that mm-hmm. you are, uh, you, that you're drawn in by me. Um, and then, um, you, you have uh, these kind of prescribed, so you have these kind of prescribed roles and then, um, you have the, the ways in which the heel is allowed and everyone knows that the audience uh, kind of is, is in on this, allowed to break the rules in certain ways that babyface uh, wrestlers are not. And um, as I began to understand these written and unwritten rules, I just I could just kept coming back to politics and just kept thinking about the, the written and, and unwritten rules that we have when we um, see candidates up on a big stage, when we see them interact with each other, when we see the ways that they try to get their audiences to come along with them. Um, and, you know, we think, we hope that when we're voting for somebody or we're listening to a candidate that we're not just, we're not just going with our emotions, but you know, a lot of times I think, I think we are. And I think that that's very true in wrestling too. It's really the underlying emotions that the wrestlers are trying to, to draw up. And, um, so, so yeah, I just had fun kind of playing with that and having, again, a character kind of voice some of the things I was thinking. So having Alex looking from a sociological perspective, um, at, the ways that communities, uh, make rules silent and, and sometimes voiced. Excellent. Thank you, Misha. Who's your favorite wrestler of all time? Well, so I, uh, I have a very, um, I, I have to say, uh, the wrestler Pagano, who is from Ciudad Juarez. Um, and mm-hmm. I have, uh, um, I've, I've known him since before he, since he very, very first started his training and he's kind of risen among mm-hmm. the ranks and the, the, um, triple A in, uh, in Mexico. So he's not, um, maybe the biggest, most famous wrestler, but he is my, my personal favorite. Um, so I have to go with that. Okay. If, um, if Pagano, am I saying that right? Yes. If Pagano were a politician, which politician would Pagano be? Oh, that's a hard question. I should have should have known you would ask something something <laughs> like this. But um, hmm. You know, so so the the thing one of the things that I find fascinating about Pagano is that when I met him, he um, was this young super punk guy who was running uh, an info shop in Juarez and something that I've always heard him talk about uh, was access and how he wanted uh, access to books, to art, to theater, to be available to more people. So he and the other group of people that he started the collective with, which the collective in the novel Perpetual West is very much modeled off of the collective that Pagano was involved in. Um, They decided to open their info shop in a neighborhood, not in a cool hip neighborhood where they knew that, that there would be a lot of support, but in a neighborhood where they thought there ought to be access. And um, 
I'm not, I don't know if I can like name a specific politician, but that way of thinking I think has, has continued um, for him right now. He's working, he, he has a gym called Kalaka in Juarez that um, he is a, a part of and they, his dream with that, which is kind of underway. And I think he wants it to grow even more is to provide a space for kids after school to have that is not just the streets, like a place for them to go where they can spend time in a healthy um, way, interact with their bodies and have models for ways of life that um, might not otherwise be available to them. And so I think he sees the gym as a new version maybe of the kind of info shop community center that he was involved in years ago. So I see that as a through line, this idea of access and um, kind of bringing that community space to the communities that need it the most, not waiting for them to somehow make it across the city to the, you know, more privileged areas. So I think he would, he would actually make a great politician. I don't know if I can name someone who he, who he would be, but I think he should just be his own politician probably. All right. I'll accept that answer. Thank you so much, Misha. And those, those difficult questions, that's what I'm here for. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, finally, um, and listeners, there's so much more to talk about here, but Misha's book isn't even out yet as we sit here recording. So I don't want to spoil too much of it for you. Uh, but finally, Misha, you learned how to wrestle for this book. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, maybe that's, that's a generous way of putting it, but I did attend a wrestling school. So I, um, I was, I did all kinds of different, uh, research for this book, but, um, I found at a certain point that I really needed to do some physical research. I needed to know what the ring felt like, um, what the ropes would feel like in the wrestler's hands. Um, you know, so, um, I struggled at first with how to access that because, you know, you can't just like walk in and say, Hey, you know, during, during an event or after an event, Hey, let me just, you know, jump up in the ring. And I wanted to do it in a very respectful way. So I found um, the Firestar pro wrestling school in Greensboro, North Carolina, and wrote to um, wrote to them and said, Hey, here's the truth. I'm working on this book and um, I need to do some hands-on research and they were down for it. And so I signed up for some classes and pretty quickly it became evident that I, my, my talents did not lie in, in the physical aspect of wrestling at least. Um, and at one point that my teacher actually said to me, you know, if you continue I was learning, I really didn't get past like the first thing they were trying to teach me, which is called to bump, which is to fall backwards in a very controlled kind of way where you make this loud slap against the mat, mm -hmm. um, but you're controlling it so that you don't break your neck or, or give yourself a concussion. And the teacher said to me, if you continue to do this so badly, you're going to give yourself a concussion and you're not going to be able to write your book. Um, which was, yeah, probably good advice. Um, but so at that point, uh, my research kind of pivoted away from me actually um, engaging in trying to learn to wrestle and more just being there during the classes and um, watching people and uh, yeah, getting into the ring and feeling kind of how bouncy it was, seeing how it was constructed, all that kind of thing. But um, I, I unfortunately do not see a future for myself in professional wrestling. <laughs> right. Well, kudos 
to you for trying, Misha. And um, I believe that you spoke about that wrestling school a few years ago um, at the North Carolina Book Festival when this book was being written. I've been looking forward to it ever since. It was worth the wait. Thank you for writing it. I can't wait for our listeners to read it. Friends. I have been speaking with Misha Marin, author of Perpetual West, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Misha, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. Once again, I would like to thank Misha Marin for joining me. Copies of Perpetual West can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our friends at Libro FM Audiobooks for sponsoring us. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstores in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.